Um, all right, so if you've been with us, you know that we are kind of trucking our way through the book of Mark. Uh, Jill read the passage for us today, and, and kind of what we're going to do today is going to be a little bit, little bit different than what I've been doing the last few weeks. It's been more of a kind of a dialogue the last few weeks. We'll, we might do that a little bit today, um, but I just kind of want to talk through the passage. And, and there's just, uh, personally, there's, there's a place that um, I feel like I, I landed on this week that I felt like God was speaking to me, and I think, you know, Ironically enough, when, when you're this small of a gathering, you kind of know some of the, the ins and outs of different people's lives. And so I just kind of feel like it's, it's just a message that's going on in people's lives right now. Um, and if it's not in your life right now, uh, it will. And so, so where, we, where we find ourselves, the reason we kind of dipped back into last week's passage, verse 15 is because we see a, especially when this, when this man approaches Jesus, we see a really, a, a, a difference of worldview, if you will. Because Jesus starts this off, the passage that we just read, talking about how one receives the kingdom or how one enters the kingdom or how one inherits or gets the kingdom, right? And he says, he just gives us, he basically says, there's one way to get the kingdom, right? And what, what word was that that he used? Anybody remember? No, you are quiet. Come on, somebody. You have to receive it. That's it. That's your role in getting the kingdom. You don't do anything to earn it. You don't work real hard. You don't establish it. You simply receive it. That's how the kingdom comes to you. And he, and he even gives us kind of a, a descriptive on how we receive it. Right? Because there's, there's a lot of things, especially as adults that we receive, we kind of feel like, it's about time. I kind of deserve that. that. That should come to me. But that's not what he says. He says we are to receive it like a child. In the last couple of weeks, we've kind of been talking about, or we, we haven't been talking about children, but we have, we have talked about what the child stood for in, in that time. And that the child was kind of the epitome of of the poor and of the powerless. Because there is nothing in society that they could do to earn anything. And the children recognize that. So anything that they received, any gift that they, they got, it was because the person who was giving it completely decided to give it to them. And that was it. And that was the child's role. The child's role was to simply receive the gift. And so what Jesus begins or how Jesus ends this one conversation is by almost telling the people, I know it's your nature, right? It's their nature. I know it's kind of your bent to want to do, to want to earn. So at the end of the day, you can say, at least I did this. But what I want you to know is that there is nothing in and of yourself that you can do to get the kingdom except receive it. Then right after this conversation happens, Jesus stands up, takes off, and he's approached by another man. And the first question this man asks, as if he's almost ignoring what Jesus said, was, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Almost like he's saying, I know, Jesus, I get this. We're, we're, on, the same, we're on the same wavelength, good teacher. I know you've been telling these poor people, these powerless people, making them feel better that they must receive it. But come on, good person to good teacher. What do we, what do I have to do to make this happen? What do I have to 
do to, to secure this? He, he starts off and um, he says, good teacher, what must I do? What we know from, if we go to Matthew and we go to Luke, what we find out about this guy is he's not just an ordinary guy. But, but Matthew and Luke let us know that he is a rich young ruler. Okay? So he has, in and of himself, he has established great wealth. We don't know how he, how he got it, but we know he has it. We also know he's a man of influence and he's a man of authority. But if, if that's not enough, he's a man who's achieved this wealth. He's achieved this influence. He's achieved this authority at a very young age. He is the rich young ruler. So it would make sense as somebody who is used to achieving, somebody who is used to doing, somebody who is used to making things happen, that he would approach Jesus and say, good teacher, as a good man speaking to you, come on, what do I need to do to make sure that I inherit eternal life? Now, the idea of good there is not like, not like we use the word good. It's not... Um, uh, it's not like you just are good morally most of the time. It's not like you do some good acts. But the idea of good, when we're talking especially in the Gospels, is, is related to the ideas of the law. It's related to ideas of holiness. It's related to ideas of righteousness. And so he, he's, he's acknowledging that there's something different about Jesus that makes him this type of person, okay? And when he goes to him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The question in and of itself is an odd question. Because first of all, the, the idea of, of eternal is not like when we, we kind of messed up the idea of what the afterlife or what heaven or whatever, whatever word you want to use as something that we get to go to in another dimension when we die. And that's, that's what life is, is all about. It's not what this man was, was thinking about when he was talking about eternal life. In fact, the word eternal there actually means belonging to the age. He did not have this idea that his goal was to die and go somewhere that was otherworldly and then kind of exist there singing praises for eternity. That's not the idea the Jews had of eternal life. So he's asking Jesus, he's saying, what must I do to belong, to inherit to be part of this age that is coming that is not here yet. Because with the way the Jews viewed their future was kind of broken up into two epochs, if you will. And you had the, you had the present age. In the present age, it was kind of like Murphy's Law ruled. Um, sometimes bad people won. Sometimes they were successful. Sometimes they, they oppressed people. And sometimes good people, uh, they had to live under unjust rulers. Um, sometimes they succeeded and sometimes they failed. But it was more of the whatever happens kind of happens life. And they were longing, they were hoping, they were, they were waiting for this day that this age to come would not zap them out of the earth and put them in another location, but would actually break through and annihilate everything that stood in existence to the shalom, to the peace, to the rule, and to the reign of God. And this man is asking Jesus, what do I need to do to make sure I am not part of those who are being annihilated, who will no longer exist, but I am part of of this age that will break in. Now, the reason this is a weird question, as I said earlier, is because there was not a debate on the answer. Like you didn't have one answer here from, from the liberals and a different answer from the conservatives and you didn't get any of that. 
Everybody kind of agreed how this worked. And the idea was that every rabbi, no matter what their bent was, would basically tell you, you got to follow the law, you got to fulfill the law, you got to obey the law, you got to follow our way of being. And so if he's been asking this question for any period of time, this is the answer that he continually gets. But yet something inside of him makes him look at Jesus and say, maybe there might be a different answer here. Anybody, this is, this is a hypothesis. We're going we're gonna to do that a little bit here. I know we're not supposed to read into the text, but let's do that. Um, why would he go to Jesus if he already knows the answer as a Jewish man? Why would he ask again? Anybody have any ideas? Is it like the answer? That's possible, Yeah justify himself. He likes Jesus. Okay, that's that's pretty good. He wants to go along. I don't think any of these are wrong. I think... Yeah, he knew something was different about him, though, than the other rabbis, right? Have you... Have you ever... And Have you ever accomplished a goal before? Anybody in here ever? Achieved, accomplished got that job you always long for. And once you get it, what do you feel like inside after the, woohoo, pat myself on the back? What do you feel like? What's next? It's not all I thought it would be. Right? We know this guy's not testing Jesus. It's that he comes to him with sincerity, right? He's not like the Pharisees. I mean, this guy wants to know. I think what we have here is a man who has accomplished greatness at a level and an age that most people don't. He's obeying the law, and at the end of the day, he still knows something is missing. And he watches Jesus, and he looks at Jesus, and he knows there's, there's something just a little bit different between him and the other rabbis. And so he says, okay, you, I've been watching you heard your stories. I want to know how I really inherit eternal life. He calls him good teacher, right? And Jesus' response is interesting. He says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? Because there's, there's nobody good except God alone. And I think what Jesus is doing, he's beginning to head off two different thought patterns that might be in this guy's, in this guy's head. Really, one of them really speaks to our world today. We have, it's, it's very popular today to say that uh, Jesus is not the son of God. He's not God, but he, he was a, he's a good man. He's a good teacher, right? He's, he's good, not God. If you look at history, and Jesus is not God, he is the most evil, sadistic, manipulative man that's ever lived. Right? Think of all the people that have given their life for him, that have left home for him, that have been martyred for him. And if he has pulled over the biggest hoax in history and caused all these people to die, to give up their life, to follow his way, he's, if he's anything, he's not a good man. And so he's telling this guy, if you're coming to me, is just a teacher, then I'm just as flawed as you are. If you want to believe my words, if you want to follow my words, then you either have to believe I'm God or I'm nothing. But I think he's also saying something else. I think, to, to be more specific to the text, 
I think he, is, he recognizes that this guy thinks he's pretty good too. And we're getting ready to find that out. This guy thinks, I've accomplished a lot. I have a lot of authority entrusted to me, which he would have thought was given to him by God, probably. Right? We get to find what he, he thinks of his own relation to the law. But right away, before we even get there, Jesus heads off the conversation by saying, there is no human that is good. Remember how we said what, what good actually meant? There is nobody in right standing with God in the area of holiness, in the area of righteousness, in the area of the law. So he begins to head this, this whole conversation off, getting ready to tell the man how not good he really is. The man. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God. And then he goes into the commandments right away. He just he jumps, he jumps into the commandments. And I, I don't know if, you, if you've noticed this or if, if you've got the commandments memorized, but what's odd is he skips the first four. You notice that? He skips the first four. He hits the last six. And he just, he kind of rattles them, he kind of rattles them off. And they are, let's see, He's, he talks about murder. He talks about adultery. He talks about stealing, lying, honoring your father and mother. And then he, he switches coveting for defrauding, right? Defrauding, if you look up at the original 10, was not one of them. But he throws defrauding there. And, and this, is, this is speculation. But my thought is on that, is that at this guy's point in life, with his status and, and what he's achieved... Probably in his circle of people, there's not really a whole lot to covet. Right? And, and probably if he's going to, to, to make, if, if he hit that point where he's like, you know, I can still, I can still do more, his, his motivation will be more to defraud to get to that point. And so Jesus lists these six, the last six of the commandments, I think, because the, the, the truth is, is that it would be very easy and it would be very tempting for somebody with money, wealth, and power to break one of these six. And he's basically saying, what, what, what Jesus is saying is, have you used your money to entice? Have you gained money or have you used money to manipulate? Have you, have you used money selfishly and not taken care of mom and dad? Because if you remember a few chapters ago, Jesus actually accuses the Pharisees of giving the people the right to not honor mom and dad and use their stuff for Corbin. Right? So Jesus is running down this list. It's almost he's even setting the man up more. Because the man looks at all this and he's, what, does he, what does he tell Jesus? He says, yeah, I... I've done these since I was a kid, even probably before I had money. We, we can guess what he's talking about. It's probably around the age of 13. I've been doing everything I know to do and follow these. So he's saying, Jesus, yeah, I've, I've done this. And at the end of the day, I still feel like I might not be one of those who inherits eternal life. I might not be one of those who inherits the kingdom. And I've done it. I've done it all. I don't know what else to do. Good teacher. Right? Another thing he's saying is, I'm good also. I'm good too. I'm good like you. This is, this is good rich young ruler to good teacher. Or 
we're having this conversation. I'm good and you're good and I kind of need your opinion on this thought. And then Jesus turns to him and it says something very interesting. It says, and he loved him. And he loved, I think it's the only place in Mark where it talks about Jesus specifically loving one person. It doesn't say he turned to him and judged him. It doesn't say he turned to him and had disdain for him. It says he turned to him and he felt love or he loved him. In other words, what is getting ready to happen is flowing out of the deep love that Jesus has for this man, for his entering of the kingdom, and is for his eternal destiny. He was completely motivated by love. And he turns to the man and he says, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. You remember the, we just, we just said, Jesus first talks about the first six, the last six commandments. But he leaves off the first four. You know, the first four, they have to do with loving God with everything you are, right? Making sure that God is the very center of you. He is not, he is not a friend when you're lonely only. He is not a banker when you're in need. He's not a rock that you just want to lean on when you're lonely. But he is God, he is ruler, and he is a savior of your life. I think the second one, what is it? It's talking about having no idols, right? No, no images before him, nothing else that you give dual loyalty to. We have the whole uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain in those first four. And so I think, and then we have, we have really one of the most important is we have, we have the Sabbath. We have the idea of the Sabbath. We know what the man's reaction was when Jesus says this. And I think what we have going on here is Jesus revealing to the man that sure, it looks like on the surface you've kept the law. But the proof that you can't give up everything you've got to follow me, not just as good teacher, but as God, shows that I am not the Lord your God. You've broken the first commandment. You do it every day. You breathe. It shows that you do have other gods before me, that your loyalty goes in two places, and you do it every day. Remember, he turns to him and loves him and begins to reveal this. The idea of taking God's name in vain, we've dumbed it down to not using God's name with a cuss word, which, is, which we probably should, we should not do. We should honor his name. But that, the whole idea of not taking God's name in vain is not saying one thing with your mouth like, I am Yahweh's, I serve God, God is my Lord, and then live life contrary to that. That's the idea behind taking his name in vain. And he tells this man, you do it daily. You profess me with your lips, but your loyalty is to your wealth, to your power, and to your achievement. Sabbath. I bet this man took off every Sunday because he considered himself good. Or 
Saturday. But here's the idea behind Sabbath. It was, it was much more than taking a day off. There's a mindset that went behind that. And the mindset was basically reorienting your life at the end of every week to recognize who you were not and who God was. That you did not make this universe work. You did not make the world go round. It functioned fine without you. And functions better when we recognize that God is in control. But rich young man, you don't buy that. You think you are the one in control of your life. You think you are the one in control of your destiny. You don't buy that I'm the one in control of you. And he reveals to the man, yeah, you, on the outside it looks like you've kept it, but in the truth of it all, in your heart of hearts, you break the law daily. It's who you are as a human. Paul will tell us later in Galatians and so will James that that just breaking one law is the equivalent of breaking them all. And it tells to, and it tells us the man's response to that, right? Remember what the response was? It says his face was long. That's kind of a funny descriptive. But he turned away sad because he had great wealth. See, here's what I think Jesus was doing. I think Jesus was stripping the man of everything that he thought he was. He was revealing to the man that he is not this good, rich, young ruler that he thought he was. He was breaking the man at his very center and showing him that even though the outside of your life looks like you are following me, the truth is at a heart level, you live your life completely against me. And this is what I think caused the man to be so sad. Because for his whole life, he thought he was this good, law-abiding, God-loving person. And Jesus just reveals to him that you're no different from these very poor, unable people that I just got finished talking to. How do we know Jesus was bringing this man to the end of himself. This is what he was doing. He's bringing the man to the end of himself. It says that the man went away sad. That is a bad word to use for this. The word sad there is actually the same word that is used if we go forward to the garden, right? Where Jesus is praying and he begins, and we know he begins to grieve. It's the same word that was used about Jesus when it says that he grieved a great grief. You know why Jesus grieved a great grief? I'm sure he was a little worried about the torture on the cross. But I think Jesus knew that his center was getting ready to get rocked. Because for eternity, he had had every rich there was. He had had God the Father at his very center. God the Father was his identity. God the Father was everything that made Jesus who he was. And for a moment in time, when Jesus became, not just took it, but when he became the sin of the world, that relationship was severed. And his sinner got rocked. And he grieved a great grief. 
You know what Jesus did to this man? He rocked his sinner. He showed him that God to you is not God. He's a nice friend. He's a genie. He's someone here to help you out when you need it. But he is not your savior. Your savior is your ability. Your savior is your wealth. Your savior is everything that you can do in and of your own strength. He turned to him in love and says this. And I think the thing is, I think the thing is, is that we serve a God who loves us so much that he is going to take every opportunity he can to bring us to the end of ourself. Later on, this, this astonishes the disciples and Jesus uses this little, this, this weird phrase. He says, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to get through the eye of the needle. And it's funny throughout history, we've tried to make that as man-centric as we can. If you try hard enough, if the camel squeezes, put a little oil on the side, push, then might get through. The problem with that interpretation are those needles in the gate. They, they thought it meant like a, this hole in this gate. The problem with that is we don't find those for a few centuries later. Jesus is actually saying it's harder for someone who trusts in themselves and their own abilities to get into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel. We have, we have sayings like that today. Snowball's chance in hell. Right? You've heard that when pigs fly. In other words, it's impossible. It's impossible. He'll go on later to say, not just for rich people, but for everybody, it's impossible to get into the kingdom of heaven. And here's why. Because when we build our identity on everything that is of this age, our ability, our strength, our wisdom, our thoughts, our whatever. When we build our identity around that instead of the work and person of Jesus, that stuff cannot survive in the kingdom. It, it, it has as good of a chance as getting into the kingdom as a camel going through the eye of the needle. In, in other words, there won't be much left of you in the kingdom because everything you have built your identity around is annihilated. There's nothing left. There's a story I was reading earlier this week. Me and a bunch of guys, we're kind of, we go through, we're reading books of the Bible and we're reading, we're reading the uh, book of Ruth right now. And uh, most, of us, most of us know the story of that, right? I, I'm, I don't want to get into anything, anything too deep, but most of us know the story of that, right? You have this woman, Naomi. She, she marries, I'll probably mispronounce his name, this guy, Elimelech, and um, there's a great famine in the land. And um, I, I think, whether he was right or wrong, I think out of the motivation to, to care for his family, he moves to Moab um, and, you know, with, with his wife and his sons. His sons end up marrying there. And, uh, and then as chapter one rolls on, her husband dies and her sons die. Now, w- what's interesting about that is if we, if we know anything about history from that time, Okay. Everything that created the value of a woman was in the fact of being married, right? That, that's what made a woman a woman. Thank God things have changed. But her identity, who she was, was found in the fact that she was wife. 
And her purpose was to give that man sons. That was her purpose. That's what a woman lived for. There's not much value outside of those two things. And by the middle, by the beginning of chapter one of Ruth, this woman has not only lost her identity, but she's lost her purpose, her reason for being. Right? And then there's this whole thing of, of um, Ruth saying, I'll stay with you, Naomi. I'm not going to leave you as one of her daughter-in-laws. They make it back to Israel. And, and Naomi goes into this very melancholy, very sad kind of a song describing what's going on. And at the end of it, she says this. This has been on my mind all week. She said, I went away full. I went to Moab and I had everything. I had my identity, was fulfilling my purpose. Everything that made a woman a woman, I was full of. And then she says, she follows it up and says, but the Lord, not circumstances, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And what we see through the rest of Ruth, now now the, the, the major plot, the major theme of Ruth is what God is doing through Boaz and Ruth and he's establishing the genealogy of Jesus. But the subplot, what you find is God brings Naomi to the end of herself and he begins to reestablish her and begins to reveal to her the God that he truly is. But he first has to bring her to the end of herself. I think there are people in here that God is bringing to the end of themselves. Whether that's through losing a job, maybe getting a job that you thought this will answer all the questions and it's done nothing but bring stress and heartache. Maybe it's an accomplishment. But I think sometimes in all of our lives, God turns to us in love and allows us to enter doors that crush us. That bring us to the end of ourselves. That reveals to us that God is not our true center. And we have a couple options. We can do what this man did and grow sad grieve a great grief, turn away and walk away. But we can do what Naomi did. And we can realize that out of God's great love, he brought us back empty. Because he so desperately loves us and wants us to have him as our center. Because he knows without that, there is no eternal life. There is no inheriting kingdom. It is all in God being at the very center of who we are. There's another person in the Bible who got this. It's Paul. Remember Paul? Paul went away full. He achieved everything you could really achieve at that age. I mean, he even talks about all the education he got at at that age as a Pharisee. He thought he was righteously pursuing the people that were against Yahweh. He thought he was doing all of that. He goes through these different times in the New Testament where he talks about all that he has accomplished. And God does what also to Paul? He brings him to the end of himself. He shows him that his greatest strength was nothing but pathetic weakness. He shows him that his greatest wisdom was nothing but pathetic foolishness. And Paul has a change of heart. He says, let me just finish with this. He writes in Philippians, this is a very different thing 
for someone who found his center in everything that he could do like the rich young man. By the time Jesus brings him to the end of himself, brings him to the cross, he doesn't turn away sad and leave, but he, he writes things like this. Philippians 3, starting in verse 8. He says, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not because I have my own righteousness, which is what the rich man thought he had, derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by the way of Christ. In other words, I have just received it. Christ's faithfulness. A righteousness from God that is in fact based on Christ's faithfulness. He understands there is nothing he did or could do that gave him, that allow him to receive righteousness, holiness, perfection in the law, except for the faithfulness of Christ. My aim, this is what it looks like to have Christ as our center. My aim is to know him, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, and to be like him in his death. And so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead, which is exactly what this man was talking about. In his love, he turns to us and brings us to the end of ourselves. Ourselves. 